You're listening to a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. As we're going through the series on the book of Acts, you, we'll get to see several things very, that are, are uh, patterns that are followed. You get to see like big picture stories where uh, like here's the general state of what's happening within the context of the church and it, over a period of, of about 20 years or so. And then there's quite a few individual stories that end up popping up. And what we're going to be touching on today really is an area where there's individual stories. And it, it's funny because this last week at, at Life Group, we discussed this a little bit. The idea of where does evil come from in the world? We, it coincides with the things that we're seeing as the war continues in, in Ukraine, as we see uh, acts of terror taking place against Israel. Uh, and so... Both of these things are being done, uh, and especially with, with what's happening currently, in the name of religion. And what we're going to be touching on today, we get to see where very religious men justify committing murder because they, it, it, they feel that it fulfills what their, their religion would demand of them. And rather, I'm not trying to make this about modern day world, but there are definite parallels. But in this, we get to hear the story of Stephen, the first martyr. When I say martyr, you may immediately think of death and people dying for their faith, and that's definitely a part of it. But anytime you see the word witness in the New Testament, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria until the very end of the age. Every time it says witness, the word for witness is martyr, and that's a person who gives testimony about what they've seen and heard of Jesus sometimes by giving their life. But every time there's the witness. This is the first person since Jesus that is being killed because of their witness of Jesus. It's uh, something that is, the word here is in the legal, historical, and ethical sense. Another way that they've described it is a person whose faith in Christ is proven through their death. Okay. In this specific story, we hear about Stephen, who was one of the seven Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews that were appointed to be deacons or distributors of food. Have you ever wondered what a deacon is? Anybody ever you've, you've had deacons in your church? Our deacons uh, distribute food in the cafe. And we don't think of, you know, Diane as a deacon. And you don't have to start calling her Deacon Diane unless you want to, Joni. You can, you're on a thing today, you can do that. Uh, but distributing food and making sure people have what they need. Anyway, the, the Jewish widows were being prioritized and the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. So the early church gets together, they pray, they decide we're going to appoint seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They all happen to be Greek-speaking speaking Jewish guys, and they are put in charge of distributing the foods. And among them are two that we're going to encounter over the next couple chapters. First is Stephen, who is the first person to do signs, wonders, and miracles besides the original apostles. So he's becoming well-known. In one of our life groups a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this, and one of our, the people on the side, it's so awesome seeing what, how many great things God's going to do in Stephen's life. He's being singled out here. And I said, if you read further ahead, he's being singled out here because they kill him. And she's like, what? <laughs> they kill him? It was fun. You read through it. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff. Stephen, full of Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, with a good reputation, is placed in situations where he's not only distributing food, but he's also declaring the message of the gospel. He, he is a person who is a preacher. He shares the gospel good news, and he is a teacher. He gives the specific teachings on this is what we believe and why we believe it. So we're going to read Acts chapter 6, 
verse 8 through chapter 7, verse 2, there's an entire section that we are not going to cover today. And basically what it, what it addresses is Stephen's response to the religious leaders about why he is doing what he's doing. And I'll give you a sum up version of that. Okay, so 6, 8 through 7, 2. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. He goes on to explain from Scripture how over and over again God would reveal himself. He would speak to prophets, and these prophets would come and bring the message of the gospel. Prophets really were appointed to serve as a, a foil for the king that Israel demanded. So with the, rise, the uprising of establishment of a king, God established prophets to speak on his behalf and sometimes speak against what the king was doing. So he said, Stephen was talking about God would raise up a prophet and your ancestors would persecute or kill him. And then God would do this in this situation and your people would do this. And it comes to the point where, there, and we will read this in just a couple minutes, where at the very end, Stephen says, and basically... This has come to a head most recently with you people, when the Son of God, when the author of life, when the creator of the universe was here in the flesh, you did the exact same thing that was done to the prophets of old. You didn't listen to them, you plotted to kill them, you used religious uh, twistings of the law in order to justify it, and this is what you've done. And their response is to gnash their teeth and imagine trying to bite your left ear while, you know, while you're as shaking your head angry and covering their ears and they rush him out of the city and we'll see what happens in just a second. In this situation as we read through the gospels, we read through the book of Acts, it's very easy to look at the religious leaders as the ones who are the problem, as the ones who are the real enemy. And I got to tell you, when we see or hear of unspeakable atrocities or tragedies and sins against humanity, individual or in mass, it's very easy to focus on, you know, the enemy is Hamas. The enemy, the enemy are the radical Muslim uh, terrorists. The, the enemy is this. Or the, the enemy was the religious leaders in Jesus' time. The, religi the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the Herodians. These are people who are the, the enemy. But what Scripture tells us is that though there may be human agents that are involved, both in the past and now, that they're actually inspired by, by the devil. And it's... It's not a, just like, well, the devil made them do it. This is something where when people give themselves over to do evil, their actions become empowered by darkness. This last week, I was having a conversation with my daughter, Elise, uh, in person, not via Instagram this time. And as we were interacting, she was sharing about a Hasidic Jewish woman. Was she a midwife? So anyway, uh, that she follows on the social media. And she had this woman had posted something regarding the atrocities that were happening in, in Jerusalem. 
And over and over again, people are responding with great vitriol and, and just horrendous things. And I, I don't even want to get into this, the stuff that this woman was saying. As she's saying, you know, here's what's happening to the babies. Here's what's happening to the kids here. Here's what's happening to our people. Here's what's happening to men and women. It's just to even speak of them. It, it's, there's a scripture that says we don't even talk about what the evil do. Because it's just so horrendous. And yet there's times where we have to be, have it held in front of us to know this is what's going on. And Elisa's, as she's descri- describing this, and asking for prayer and asking people to intercede for her, her nation, others are responding and with, you deserve this, this is your fault, and you know, more's coming, and I hope, you, I hope you just get the worst of it. And we're, it's like, where does this come from? It's like that is an, it's a, it's, I would call it an anti-Christ spirit. It's a spirit that seeks to to steal, kill, and destroy. The anti-Christ spirit also comes to raise itself up in opposition to the worship of Jesus. At the very end of time, before Jesus returns, there will be a manifestation of an anti-Christ. And that will be the one that will raise himself up as God to be worshipped. But it's not just going to happen one time. This is a spirit that shows up in opposition to the things of God. And you know, for us who have been have been brought to Christ. We are like uh, Tiffany was sharing earlier. We are like those who have been brought into the kingdom of God from the outside. God initially chose the Jewish people as his holy people, as the ones that are set apart to him, not because they're awesome, but by, because he chose them, they became his people. So for the longest time, the Jewish people thought that they were special, and that's why they'd been chosen. They didn't realize that they were chosen, so they became special. Does that make sense? So we've been brought into that family, and yet God still has a very special place in his heart. And as you read through the scriptures, you will find that one of the signs and wonders and miracles that's going to happen in the last days is God is going to turn the hearts of his people, the Jews, back to himself. Largely in Israel, if people worship God, they do it very uh, they worship the God of, of the Old Testament, they would do it very nominally. They've been cured through their shaking all over the world of their polytheism for the most part. But in the last days, he's going to call them back to Jesus, recognize Jesus is the Messiah. That's his promise. It's in, the, it's in the book. As we look at this, looking at who is this real enemy, we see Acts chapter 6, verse 12, giving us a little bit of insight as to what motivates it. It says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When people offer themselves up to sin, they act out in their flesh. This is one of the reasons why in the book of James it says, don't give in to your flesh. Because if you give in to your flesh, you are giving yourself over to temptation the things that we're drawn to, and as we're giving ourselves over to temptation, it gives opportunity for sin, and the more we give ourselves over to sin, there's a deeper deception that as we would continue in this deception over and over again, it develops a mindset that is clouded and unable to see truth. Beyond that, it can become a point that we get stuck in and have to be rescued from. It becomes a stronghold, becomes a way of thinking and acting that is completely trapped within this. You want to call it a delusion, but I'd say something even stronger than that. Ultimately, the enemy can have a foothold in our life if we continue to give in to our flesh. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, be angry and don't sin, and therefore don't give a foothold to the devil. Anger is not an issue, but if we sin in our anger, 
and especially if we do it repeatedly, we give the enemy an opportunity to function in our life and to use us, not, and almost like we're willingly giving ourselves to him as a tool. So these traumatic events, the death, the abandonment, the abuse, the disasters, the, this divorce, we can go through hard things, and these can become pl- things where we would say things like, you know, I'm never going to be vulnerable with another human like that, or I'm never going to trust a man like that, I'm never going to trust a woman like that, or I'm never going to trust God that way. And with these declarations that we make, what we're actually doing is we're putting ourselves in a spot where we give the enemy an opportunity to work within us. Those vows become binding to us. And it's only by coming and surrendering those things to Jesus and saying, God, I made a vow, and in Jesus' name, by the blood of Jesus, I renounce that vow, that I will be vulnerable to my wife appropriately. I will be open to your leading. I will, and you understand what I'm saying? It's it's the undoing of that. Early on in our relationship, Joni had made a vow based upon some things, some, some trauma that she had experienced, I will never open myself up to or trust a man. That created great challenges as God is turning her heart to where, you know, when I met her, she's on her way to UC Davis. She wants to become an osteopathic physician. She's going to live in San Francisco. She's going to be married to nobody, and she's going to just live the good life, and she's just going to do that. God intersects her life and introduces her to this, and somehow, some way, she decides at some point... Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. And we thought everything was wonderful. We tried to get pre-married counseling at the time. My brother was going through cancer treatments. So we went to, didn't want to go to my parents because what they were going through. Didn't want to go to her parents because what they were going through. And we went to a couple others like, you guys are pastors, kids. You're going to be fine. (laughs) The words that come to mind should not be said out loud. It's like, that is not true. We made it to about year one and a half, and we both realized we made a terrible mistake in getting married. Because we love each other, and you know what love and a year and a half will do? It'll do nothing. The vows that Joni had made and the unresolved anger and, and grief and sadness that I had were would, we would war with each other. And there came a point where I know she loves me, she knows I love her, but we cannot interact with each other because we both in some way have made some sort of vow. I'm never going to be open or vulnerable to a person again. That's me. Joni says, I'm never going to trust a man. I'm never going to be open with him. That made it so that every time we would attempt to uh, cultivate intimacy, not just the physical, but the communication. It didn't go anywhere until one night we're sitting on our fireplace and we're both sitting forward and we're just like, God, we, we can't do this on our own. Both of us had God speak something specifically to us about those vows that we had made, those things that we had, without even trying, had given the enemy a foothold. And we, were, we renounced both of them, me and then her. And it was something that, it wasn't like, and then everything was fine. No, then we had the opportunity to begin to work on our issues and continue to move forward without the bondage, without the strongholds that had kept us bound. And that's not in my notes, so if that's for you today, take that and, and activate it. Do something with this. Act upon it. If you'd like to have conversations about this, I would love to talk to you about more, but there's nothing magic in the renunciation. There's no ceremony you have to do. There's no you know, stand on one foot and say, it's simply, I renounce what I did in Jesus' name. And I speak the opposite. I will trust. I will be open. I will and appropriately take that to, to the Lord in front of my wife. Does that make sense? Joni gets it. Okay. So, Romans 6, 12, and 13. 
Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. What will you give yourself to? Most of the time, we're not gonna think, you know, I'd like to offer myself to darkness today. I'm just thinking about it. You know, just kind of let the freak flag fly. This can show up in our life in ways that are sneaky. Our enemy is not a bumbling, doddering fool. If you ever watched the Smurfs back in the day, the cartoon Smurfs, our enemy is not like Gargamel. Our enemy is not this, oh, you know, you can't even see past the end of his nose, let alone do something destructive. Our enemy is, is, is very, very cunning and very wise and beyond us. The only way we can stand against him is by standing in the power of God. It's oftentimes when we give ourselves to something, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. I've heard friends who love Jesus, you know what, we've decided we're going to really cut loose, we're going, to, we're going to Mardi Gras this year. Why? Well, you just know to have that experience, we're going to go do our thing. You can go to New Orleans and have a good experience. You can go to New Orleans and do things you would not normally do because it's just, it's just the thing. To, it's what you do when you're in New Orleans. You know, for years you hear the stories. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I wouldn't normally do that, but I want. When you offer yourself towards indulging the flesh, it gives a foothold to the enemy. And you can end up in places where you're giving more and more of yourself towards things that are more overtly evil and not being able to see it for what it is. Those are gateways, and there's many, many more. What will you offer yourself to? What will you give yourself to? We're instructed in this passage we just read is don't let sin reign in your body. You, in the best sense of the word, are going to be a tool for somebody. Be a tool for Jesus. <laughs> That's why I didn't think through that. Okay. Pastor said be a tool for Jesus. as we look at spiritual patterns and practices, there's kind of like a ways and means how things work. A lot of the times when we're dealing with the things of God and then also the things of, of darkness, we don't have to study things of darkness in order to best get them. My mom told me a story when I was a kid when she worked in a bank. Remember what year that was, Mama? 1967, so two years before this. Uh, my mom worked in a bank and they put her in a room to learn about counterfeit money, except they didn't put any counterfeit money in it. They just gave her the real thing. And said she, they told her, just go get familiarize yourself with this. And so she did that. Have you ever seen uh, DuckTales when Scrooge McDuck is diving into That's what my mom did for who knows how long at the bank, diving through the money. No, maybe probably not. But she, was, she would touch it because if you get to know the authentic, you will be able to spot a counterfeit. It feels different. It looks different. It smells different. It's totally different. It's the same way when it comes to spiritual things. When you begin to see different ways and means that God moves, you start to see his patterns in your life where he's been at work for a long period of time. There are also ways and means that our enemy the devil uses. And in, in learning how God works, you can begin to start to spot the darkness as well. So without having to focus too much on that, there's a couple places in the Old Testament where Israel is being instructed through the law of Moses on how they are to deal with people who come in with false teaching or people who are leading them towards idol worship or worship of other gods. In the law, they are instructed 
to deal with purveyors of evil, idolatry, false teaching, the introduction of dark spiritual practices to Israel and God's people. If it happens, there needs to be at least two, but preferably three witnesses that are required to come forward to bring a personal observation of what they have seen. And then after those three witnesses or two to three witnesses are brought forward, those witnesses' stories are meant to be vetted and explored, and it's supposed to, they're supposed to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that these two or three people are telling the truth. And then the person that they're engaging about, if uh, the instigator of the rebellion, the instigator of the idolatry, is put on a trial, the witnesses share what they're sharing, and then the person, because it's such, such a heinous thing, is taken outside the city and placed at the bottom of a hill, or sometimes they would dig a hole, and then they would find these big rocks, and according to the law, they would throw the rocks at them until they were dead. It was such a, uh, a significant thing to lead people into spiritual darkness that God said, you have to remove it from your, from your presence, okay? So this practice is intended to keep people following God's law, and those who would be his enemies would be dealt with harshly. Okay? It's a totally different message as to, do we still do that today? No, we don't do that today. But that was for that specific time. We'll talk more about that another time, I promise. Anyway, religious men with their own agenda found ways to use the Torah, the law, for their own purposes. In 1 Kings chapter 21, there's a story about a guy named Ahab who was married to this wonderful Phoenician woman named Jezebel. You may have heard of her. Jezebel comes in one day and she finds out that uh, Ahab is laying on his bed weeping. And she says, what's wrong with you? And he says, I went next door to that beautiful vineyard that our buddy Naboth has, and I wanted his vineyard. And he said, I'm not going to give it to you because it belongs to my family. It's against the law. And I just want it so bad. And Jezebel said, are you the king? Are you a shrimp? Come on, on your feet. Here's what you're going to do. Go call a holy fast declares a time of celebration to God. And at the end of the fast, call everybody together for a big feast and we'll break the fast with this feast and I'll take care of the rest. So they're there. And oh, by the way, make sure Naboth is there. So Naboth's there. They're eating the food. They've just been set apart to worshiping God and Jezebel doesn't care about God. She worships Baal and Ashtoreth and all these other fertility gods from the Canaanites. And then these two guys stand up. One says, I heard Naboth cursing God and the king. Then another guy that's funny, I heard it too. And at that moment, instead of checking out the story of those witnesses, they stand up, hey, we've got these two witnesses, here we go. And they take Naboth out and they stone him according to the law. And Ahab gets to go next door. Look at my new vineyard. Later on, in Matthew chapter 26, it says, the Pharisees attempting to incite the Romans to be, allow them to kill Jesus are trying to find some sort of twisting. They hire people to stand up to witness against Jesus. But over and over again, these witnesses, these false witnesses, these liars, they can't even get their stories straight. And yet, it still continued to go forward. They engaged in these patterns and practices to cause using the law and their religion to bring about a murder. How does this kind of stuff happen? It comes about when people who are functioning with evil intentions use religion as a tool or a stick. Uh, C.S. Lewis, actually, there's a quote in his uh, reading through the, through the Psalms that says, if a divine call, if your encounter with God, if your, your encounter with Christianity does not make us better people, it will make us very much worse. 
and of all the bad men who have ever lived, the religious bad man is the worst of all. What he's saying, in my, what I hear, is if we are encounter Christ and we, are not, we don't allow ourselves to be transformed and submit ourselves to him, but we continue to a la carte our relationship with him and say, I'll take this and this, but I'm not going to take that, we, we elevate ourselves to a creator level with him. We put ourselves on par with God, and we begin to become a person who is fluent within the relationship with God and in how to talk about following him, but we don't actually bring ourselves to the table. We become puffed up, and we become proud, and we begin to utilize our religion for our own purposes. Jesus talked about the Pharisees in this way. He said, whatever you do, follow their teaching because their teaching is on point, but whatever you do, do not follow their actions because they don't live it. They talk it, and it's accurate, but what they live is wrong. What we see over and over again are the warnings in Scripture. When someone is teaching, the, the point is, does it align with what the church has taught for years and for generations? Does, when someone is performing signs, wonders, and miracles, does the message that they're declaring follow what we've seen with the gospel good news and with the, with the, the, the teachings of Scripture? There is a time coming. Revelation says this. There is a time coming when there will be signs, wonders, and miracles, and the church will be deceived if they don't listen to the message as well. Because the message will be something that is contrary to Jesus, and the sign, wonders, and miracles that are happening are being done and empowered by dark spiritual forces. If we just look at the outward signs and we think, well, that's evidence, we will be deceived. The message is that we would, I think it's Revelation 13, we are to look and listen to the message and not just the power displays. The enemy that we combat has power as well. As a kid, I was always under the impression that all the false gods and false idols that were out there were just pieces of wood and sticks and stones. And the physical manifestation of that is true. But there are dark spiritual forces at work around the world, principalities and powers and rulers of this present darkness that inhabit cultural understandings of, of deities and goddesses and gods. And they exchange the names depending on who's worshipped in that particular area. But it's the same old school spirits that show up over and over again throughout the scriptures. I believe we're seeing modern day manifestations of, of different gods when we start to see babies being sacrificed. There were specific gods that were named by the, the gods of, of uh, the Canaanites who mandated this. And modern day practices do the very same thing, just different gods. We see things in the Old Testament where you've got what they call Baal, which is basically translated in Phoenician as, as Lord. And then we've got these others, different poles that they would erect in places and the people are supposed to bow down and worship them. And these are fertility things. These same symbols are being incorporated today in the worship of these other false deities. But there's a power that's associated with it. And if we are deceived by the displays of power we, and not listening to the message, we will be taken off guard. Over and over again, listen to the message. Listen to the message. Don't be deceived. Don't give yourself over to that. The message has to follow. It has to. The writer of, of Revelation, John, the beloved disciple, spends so much time on this. I want to grab you by the shoulders and, and hug you and say, 
the gospel message is simple and straightforward. Hold on to it with everything you've got. The teachings that have been passed down to us from the men and women who have gone before us and who are with us today and who will be going forward in the future, hold on to these. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Anything that says different is selling something or someone. It will be sold as a, well, you, you guys were just misunderstood. You did not quite get, the, let me tell you the whole revelation. And Jesus is subtly or not so subtly shifted out of the picture. I don't know what the manifestation of it will look like, but might as well go there. Whatever they put out in front of us as aliens, I think will actually fallen angels, maybe half-breed angels and demons, half-human, Nephilim, they're referred to in Scripture. And the message that they will give will be something with the signs and wonders that they're able to do will be contrary to Scripture when those that are presented as you know, aliens from other places and we're the creators, you start to usurp the place that only belongs to God, it's a great indication, the actual source of it. When these things are seeking worship and seeking that honor that only belongs to the Most High, those are signs. It's important, it's big, it's real. Not to be feared, but there is something we overcome in Revelation 13 or 12 by the word of our testimony, sharing what Jesus has done and what he's doing in our life, by the blood of the lamb who paid for us, and by not clinging to our life so much as to if we end up proving our faith through death, we overcome. You doing okay? All right. Acts 7.51. Stephen ends his message with this. This is what ticked them off. This is what caused them to gnash and bite their ears and freak out. You stiff-necked people, it starts rough. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. And when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped up their ears and they rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. I'm going to touch on a, just a couple of points in this last section. When people were, these religious leaders are confronted with truth, it's interesting because in their rage, they end up, I think, being, it doesn't say they were, uh, empowered to do what they did by the by an evil spirit, but when we give ourselves over repeatedly to our rage, to our anger, and it turns into something of rage, I don't know if you've ever seen someone where all of a sudden their face contorts and it looks they're like a completely different person. Have you ever seen something like that? Uh, often that is a manifestation of an oppressing spirit, 
And it's not that at that, it's not at that moment you say, hey, look what's going on with your face. But it's one of the reasons why when we pray, it's okay to pray with our, our eyes open to watch what is happening in the spiritual realm when truth is confronting a person. So we're looking at it. These guys, they're stopping up their ears, they rush him out and they kill him. And ultimately, as this is happening, Earlier it said Stephen's face looked like an angel. There comes a point where Stephen is covered by the grace and glory of God. And as he's preparing to be stoned, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and tells people about it. I thought this was interesting, and maybe it's a Bible nerd thing. When we hear about Jesus over and over again, what is he doing when he's in heaven? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Seated. In this situation where Stephen is being martyred, where Stephen is going to be killed for his faith, Jesus stands to receive him. Jesus stands to welcome him to eternity. I don't look forward to or relish the idea of proving my faith through death. But I can tell you this. What we see in Scripture says, if this is in front of us, Jesus will welcome us himself. He will welcome us himself. And the same grace and glory that was upon Stephen, that he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What is the, who else? Don't hold this sin against them. Who said that? Jesus said that. From that point... There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. For the first 10 or so years after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the church lived in Jerusalem in great unity and great peace and great prosperity. Jesus had prophesied in Acts chapter 1, you, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. They didn't go into Judea and Samaria because life was good. It was only here that after the, the murder of Stephen that the church it goes, undergoes a great persecution and they run for their lives, everybody but the apostles. And they go to Judea and Samaria and on the way they are sharing the message of the gospel. If you've ever heard someone give you a prophetic word or something, it's like, I think this is something God got for you. You can't know how it's going to come about. It's natural and human to try and take it and, and make it. Is this what this means? Is this what this says? But ultimately, if it's from the Lord, it will come about, and it will come about in a way that might be surprising. I don't think when anybody in Acts chapter 1 is hearing Jesus say this, like, we're going to go to Samaria? This is going to be awesome. They're running for their lives. But as they're going, they're sharing the message. That was interesting to me. Um. Yeah, I'll just leave that there. What are we going to do with this? Uh, I'd ask what stands out to you from the message today. When you're confronted with evil done in the name of God or of gods or of religion, how do you keep your own heart soft and right? What do you do when you recognize that there's people taking God's name in vain? They're saying, God told us to do this, when in reality he had nothing about to do with that. How do you keep your heart right? How does knowing the character of God and knowing his truth help you know and discern the source of people's actions and character and words?
When you see Stephen, what source of encouragement or life or an example do you see in his life? How does God's promise of his presence give you peace, especially in the face of persecution? As we bow our heads, I'd say, Jesus reminds us he will never leave us or forsake us. So Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads and we look to you, we ask you as the one who's the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher, the one who died for us, the one who was resurrected from the dead, the one who calls us from death to life, from darkness to light. We ask you to continue to be with us, to strengthen us in the face of evil, in the face of wicked, in the face of, of religious twistedness. Pray you make us faithful, make us strong, make us bold. May we hold to your word. May we be people of your word. Not turning to the right or to the left, no matter how attractive the lie may be. I thank you that in the midst of all this, you give us great joy. A joy that can't be taken, a joy that can't be stolen. You give us peace beyond, beyond the circumstances that we're in. You give us life in the valley of the shadow of death. And we bless you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've never started a relationship with Jesus, I'd love to give you a, a yes packet. Kelsey, would you wave back there? Kelsey's in the Connect and Grow area. We'd love to give you a yes packet. Basically, it says if you want to say yes to following after Jesus, you can take one of these, and there's some great information there on getting going. There's also some people going to be in the back, right back here, available for prayer for a few minutes uh, after we're done. Growth tracks will be happening right here, probably 15 minutes or so. We'll be diving in for that. But as we close, I just want to take this and pray this over you. May Jesus bless you and keep you. May Jesus make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May Jesus turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless you. Don't be afraid. Trust Jesus. Right on? Let's have a good one. This has been a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. You can reach us via email at web at hillside4.org. That's W-E-B at hillside, the number four.